It is time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Smith and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Much better, much more interesting. So you can call in today. If you'd like to reach us live, call 772-340-1590, That's the number to reach us here in Port St. Lucie, or you can reach us by text message anytime. There's two text numbers. One is for Mike Schmidt. That's me and Gary Jones, who you just heard. That's the other text number. Mine is 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. And Gary's is very similar, 772-260-6220. And we'll be glad to take your test text messages. I'm only doing the show, and we'll try to do our best to respond if we can and we'll take them during the week as the notion strikes you or if you think of something you want to talk to us about i'll give you some other contact information just a little bit later in the show but uh, that's where we are this morning as far as uh, getting a hold of us as i said it's a live call-in show we are just christians is about trying to go back to just the new testament and only the new testament for our rule of faith and practice both in our personal lives and in the church, we believe it forms a pattern of what Christ is, Christ sent his apostles to teach us about how to live, both uh, as a church corporately and as individuals. And as Christ is king of king and kings and lord of lords, it forms a basis for human life and happiness and flourishing. So that's the premise of the show. Fundamentally, we're trying to get past human traditions and denominations and so forth. So if you call the show. What we're going to try to do, uh, and you can judge whether we're effective at that or whether we're doing it or not, but what we try to do is give you a Bible answer, specifically a New Testament answer, to whatever question that you ask us, some perspective from the Scriptures, not from uh, our, not from a denominational tradition of some sorts. Since we don't really have any, we simply practice what the New Testament says as best we can. There's no church hierarchy here. No one's telling us what to say. We're not part of some denomination. We're just a church of believers that is trying to follow the New Testament like other churches around the world are doing this very hour. We're not completely alone in that, but that's the basic premise of it. Most other denominations talk about that, but what they're really doing is they're pledging some sort of allegiance to a creed book, a tradition, a guidebook, a discipline, whatever it may be, or to a man like the Pope or someone else. Well, we, we we're, have a, we, we're, we're not for that. We're against that. We're going to talk against that. So well, we have that. a creed book, but it's called the Bible. It's well, a, since it, the word creed comes from Latin, yeah. means I believe or beliefs. So yes, I guess that, you can say that. Um, basically, uh, we're looking to John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Those are Jesus's words to us. Yes. So his words will judge us. And one of the things he said uh, while he was here is that he sent his apostles to teach what he had said. I, yeah. gonna gu- he was going to guide them into all truth. And he said that whoever rejects them rejects me. So they weren't all on their own just making something up. Jesus said if you reject the apostles, it's the same as if you reject him. Now, I didn't say if you reject what the pope says or what some religious body says, something like that, then you've rejected me. He said, when you reject the apostles. So we certainly 
and and then we also see right right away that it says about the early disciples that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and doctrine, fellowship, and and so forth. Right. So anyway, Gary, we have a we have a couple of uh, phone well, calls this morning already. Well, one more one right, more scripture, uh, Galatians one eleven. Paul says, "But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it." but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how the apostles got it. Okay. Well, we have a couple of, a couple of calls. I, uh, I'm showing here that Jerry's on the line. How you doing, Jerry? Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gary. Thank you for taking my call. I was wondering uh, the opposite of a quiet question. Uh, quiet question would be a, a righteous act. And uh, that, that's, uh, I was also, if you'll get time uh, on this show, uh, in a Hebrew wedding, there's a bride circle the room seven times uh, during the ceremony. Is that just a myth, or is it uh, they actually circle the groom set seven, the bride circles the room seven times uh, during the, the ceremony? But most I'm interested in. Uh, uh, client washing and the opposite of a uh, client washing could double a righteous act. And okay. So like off, oh, Mike, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine, Jerry. Thank you for calling in today. Uh, well, uh, let's. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I, there's a passage in First John that I want to go to about the idea of transgression. I'm not sure that there is a. Uh, an opposite word. It, well, there is in the in the Bible sense, um, and I'm not sure why I'm not showing up what I am looking for. Uh, the uh, I must be in the wrong Bible here. But John says, "Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ has not God. Does not have God." Now, now let me let me look that up. I, I that is, and I'm trying to get the exact. Uh, phrasing for you here. That's pretty close. Uh, 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 First John 2. I don't know why my Bible is not picking up uh, this this word here, but I probably have something uh, amiss in what I'm typing in. I know where to find it. I'll just go. I'm just going to have to look, Gary. And believe it or not, in the King James Version of all things, I'm going to have to look in the King James Version to find this. And uh, What's the key word you're looking for? Well, I'm looking for transgress, and it's not showing up at all in anything that I do. So I know that's not – I know that's not not correct. So there's something wrong with my app this morning. But And I don't know what – I'm. hang on. Well, it's it's certainly variation showing up in the New King James. What are you seeing? Because I, I my my app isn't working properly. But. Uh, well, basically, one it's beginning with Matthew 15. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition? Oh, that, that's not the that one I'm looking for. for. Uh, um, and look look in First John or Second John, John Gary. I, I'm going to have to restart this app. I apologize to those who are listening today. For some reason, uh, uh, maybe in James. Could it be in James? No, it's not in James. It's in First. But John. if you, but if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one part, he is guilty of all. Uh, that's James 2. Second uh, John, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine yeah, of Christ right. does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. I was looking at First John two, one and two, and that was wrong. It's so it's Second John, John nine. It's Second John nine and I think ten. Yeah. Whoever transgresses and does not abide or abides not in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Now there seems to be for the word transgress. It's a synonym of the word to sin, but it's not the same word, and it's not the same concept, visual concept. To sin in Greek, and I don't want to go too far back here, but to sin in Greek is to miss the mark. It literally means to shoot at a target and to miss it. Okay, You've got a target, you miss the target. So human humans are, are uh, trying to accomplish things, or they do something, and they miss the target. It implies that there's an that there is a place you need to be, a way you need sh- you should act. That's the target, and you don't do it. That's what the word sin means in the broadest sense. Now, the word transgress is more implicative of a boundary. There's a boundary between right and wrong or action uh, uh, or of something that's approved and not approved, and you cross that boundary. Either you cross from right into wrong, you see, or you tra- cross from... Uh, what is good into what is bad. So that's the idea of a transgression. It's stepping over the line that's marked out between two kinds of behavior, you see. And that's why he says in 2 John uh, 2, verse 1, or verse 9, whosoever transgresses or goes beyond the boundary and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So here's where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be within the doctrine of Christ, it, it's using it if you want to picture this as a you want to picture this verse. It's using the doctrine of Christ as a location where you ought to be walking, walking in the doctrine of Christ. That's what Christ is teaching. The word doctrine here means teaching. So Christ has taught us how to live, taught us what to think, how to act, and we're supposed to live in that bound within that boundary. When you transgress, you do not abide in that boundary. You decide you're not going to live there. The word abide means to live in. And so you decide, I'm not going to live in this world anymore of doing what Christ wants me to do. I'm going to live in my own world, do what I want. And so you go all over the boundary into uh, sin. And when you do that, John says you don't have the son anymore. You've left Christ behind you. And you don't have the father either one. You see, so... This Paul, is Paul, the, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I think it's verse 6, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Yeah, don't Same, go past what's written. Don't as, go as past what thinking. is written. Uh, that's a pretty important, uh, I think, uh, concept when we're reading and studying and looking into the Bible to see what it says. Now, in this case, they were thinking too highly of Paul, right. Paul and Apollos, rather than to understand that they are men just like them, just like a lot of people religiously, they go beyond what's written about a teacher, and I'll even use the idea of a pope or something like that, or even well, their the, preacher the Catholic church or their seems pastor to... in their church. 
and they demand to be called these fancy names. They're going beyond what's written about those men. Those men are teachers, if anything. Yeah, the Catholic Church is notorious, and they set up all of these uh, different kinds of offices which are and titles which are not in the Bible at all, and they set up unscriptural ways of honoring those men and, and so forth. So they've gone beyond what is written of them. They've gone beyond what is written, and that therefore they're transgressing. So, Jerry, I would say that the idea of transgression, and I think he said compare that to righteousness, to be righteous literally in, I think, both Hebrew and Greek, but particularly I know the Greek I'm on this, the word righteous is a standard, dikao. So you have, a, you have something that is a standard to be measured by, and when you are righteous, you are according to that standard. So we have, it's the same word in translation as justify. So you, to be justified or justification or righteousness or, or righteous are all the same Greek word. We have different English words, and it means to, to be uh, correct according to a standard. So in English, for example, we have text in a book or newspaper or whatever on the Internet that is justified on one side and maybe not justified on the other. So it's on the left-hand side, oftentimes you'll see text that all lines up to a line. That's justified text. It's, me it's being lined up according to a line on the left side. And then the other, other side they call ragged in that interesting – so in text it's justified versus ragged. Um, and the Bible would be righteous versus unrighteous or justified versus unjustified. And then you have text, some text that's justified on both sides, or all the both both sides of the line, of a column of text are all lined up to a line. That's justified text, fully justified text. In any event, so I think actually in this case, I think transgression and righteousness are somewhat opposites of each other in meaning. Now they're not considered antonyms probably in most English dictionaries, but used religiously the way the Bible uses them, that's why you have, they are, that's why you have transgression and abiding in, staying within the line, that's abiding in the doctrine of Christ. Yeah, and in Hebrews 2.2, 2, uh, the word is transgression there, and I looked it up in Strong's, it's, it simply says violation. Uh, there's it a standard, is, and that's a violation, yeah. It's to it, go beyond. So you violate a boundary or a line or a, a rule or a law, you know. And it's it's from another Greek word that simply says violate a command or to go contrary to. Right. Uh, so it's, it's it's basically in, in that class of words, I think. And, and well, most, most, every, most every word has a... physical meaning first, a concrete physical meaning, like to transgress a boundary, right, and so forth. And then, it, then, they, be, then they, get, they accumulate spiritual or, or metaphorical usage, symbolic usages of something. Uh, and so there's a boundary that's a physical boundary, and then there's a boundary in our behaviors. We have a, there's a book called Boundaries that you have about whether you should establish boundaries in your life with other people and how they treat you and how you're going to let other people treat you. Now that's, those are metaphorical boundaries. They correspond to the actual 
literal, literal boundary uh, that we can, that we uh, often see on a, you know, in surveying and whatnot. Anyway, it's interesting to look at words, and that that's that's basically the answer to your question, as far as I can tell from the Bible, uh, Jerry. I'm not sure what your uh, ultimate interest in those words is, but a transgression is going God. One, that's one thing that probably is a cornerstone of what we're teaching here and what we're trying to get across in the sh- whole show, We Are Just Christians. Gary is fond of quoting, and rightfully so, their for, uh, uh, in John 12 about what Jesus says, my words will judge you in the last day. There, you're being judged by a standard, and it is our obligation to live within the lines or the boundaries of the word or doctrine of Christ. Now, this word doctrine, sometimes we think it has some kind of a specialized meaning, religious word, but the word doctrine is simply just means teaching. So Christ is teaching. The world is teaching. Hollywood teaches you whenever you go to watch a TV show or a movie, you're being taught, taught. or indoctrinated into the viewpoint of the writers of that show, whether you like it or not, whether you even want to acknowledge it, you're being indoctrinated into their thinking. And you need to be very careful because trust me, you shouldn't necessarily trust me, but you can trust me on this. They are, they have a reason for saying what they do and, and showing you what they show you. And the way that they do and it. And the way that they do it. They have a reason in the long run, <clears throat> you see. Um, well, it's so, interesting, Mike. For in, doing so. <clears throat> that passage in Hebrews 2, too, is interesting to me because it gives you, you know, basically, I think, a result of what, you know, this stepping beyond is. He says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, Least we drift away. Okay, there's that idea of moving out of. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Right. Right. So... When you were saying that, I was thinking sometimes being a New Testament Christian requires a person to be, quote unquote, liberal. It requires them to go beyond where they are and go into someplace new. It requires them to advance, requires them to change their thinking. So we leave the world and we change the way we've been thinking and we repent and we come under the rule of Christ. We've just gone beyond what we've always believed or taught. And in that sense, you hear us on We Are Just Christians. We, you'll hear us talking about leaving where you are in your thinking and in your religious doctrines, leaving that behind. That's kind of an, a liberal idea of advancing. But what you're going to hear from us as much as anything else, too, is a more conservative idea of staying where you are, Stay, meaning not staying where you are, staying within the boundaries of the word of Christ. So being a Christian involves both aspects, both leaving something that you should not be a part of or leaving where you are, changing your thinking, being open to changing your thinking. Then it requires you to hold on to that which you've read in the word that is exactly correct and right, 
and act in such a way then to to be that. So it requires both kinds of attitudes. Some people are just reflexive. I had a, I passed out a survey at a church one time, you know, what do you want me to teach about? And people put down different things. One lady who proved, to, I, I didn't know her well at the time, she proved to be very unstable, had been and proved to be, continued to be unstable. But her comment, Gary, was anything controversial. That's what she wanted to study. So, and it proved that, yes, anything that was new or novel in her view that some that was controversial in, in that way, she wanted to study that more so than to learn what the scriptures did say. Well, so it's, it, that's it, a bad mindset. Yeah, you you kind of have to be careful because we all, I believe, might study or learn things that we're more interested in. If it piques our interest, we will go further to try to learn. And it show it, but it, those and, things but, tell you something about yourself if you're paying attention. For for instance, I'll tell you, I when I study the Bible, I have been more interested in the prophets and history and their relation to history, and yet I have to sometimes draw my mind back away from that to study other things that are important. Well, maybe in it's because all that prophets and history is so closely tied to engineering. Rocket well, science. I, I th- I, <laughs> it's probably one, the opposite of that. See, your yeah. mind is uh, is interested because it's something you haven't done most of your life. Right. It's, well, that therefore that. But it's, it's also, expanding. I'll confess, Mike, seeing the prophecy and its fulfillment in history is a source of faith to me. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, that's what it's designed to be. It's designed to strengthen our faith. Well, anyway, we got. I think we have another caller today, and we need to go on uh, to that. If you're ready, Gary, uh, Ken, are you there? Yeah, Mike, I'm here. Sorry to make you hold, but uh, go ahead. <coughs> well, um, I've got a number of scriptures uh, to talk about. Um, I'm going to just tell you the first two, but I don't want to really talk about that yet. Uh, Acts two thirty eight. And John 3, 1 through 5. Uh, I just want to, uh, we'll talk about that later. All right. I want to spend a lot of time on that. But my question about those two verses is are they talking about the same thing? It was John 3, what was the verses? 3 through 5? 5. That's about Nicodemus. Okay. Yes. Yes. What's your other one then? Okay, the other thing, the other verse is Acts 2.38. Uh, but what I really want to talk about is living water. And I got three scriptures about that. One is John 4, 13 and 14. That's the woman at the well. Right. The next one is John 7. And I've got verses 37 and 38, but there might be another one uh, there. And the last uh, verse is Jeremiah 17, 13. All of these are about living water in Hebrew, Mayim Hayim. Let's go to the woman at the well first, John 4. Okay. And... um She's about, yeah, verse 10 or 12. So Jesus meets this woman, and he asks her for a drink. She's surprised that a Jewish man asks her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink, verse 9. 
And because and then John comments for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 10. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, meaning the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal or everlasting life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So she's still thinking in the end that it's some kind of water that She's going to get she's thinking physical water, physical water that she can actually drink in, in her digestive system. So this is Jesus. I'm not sure this is the first time he mentions living water, but I think it is. This is his first mention of this living water. And um, what do you want to ask about that? The word living, by the way, is this common Greek word. Zao, which means we get zoo from that, zoological gardens. A zoo is a place where things that are alive are kept. And it means just simply living life quick, that kind of thing. You'd be alive, to breathe, be not dead. So it, it has, here's a case where you have, a, as I just mentioned, a physical meaning and then a metaphorical or spiritual meaning. And this word and this case of this woman is an illustration of a confusion of the two or a contrast of the two, the physical meaning versus the spiritual meaning. What was your comment about this, Ken? Uh, well, I, I have, uh, I just find it interesting that in these two cases, he's both talking to women. Um, so he, uh, and then right, right around down here, uh, he talks about her life and stuff, and, and she sees he's a prophet, and then she goes to town and tells everybody, is this the Messiah? Which other case? You mean in John 7? Yeah, let's go to John 7. Okay, uh, on the last day, John seven thirty seven, on the last day, that great day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe. Is that correct? Um, yes, yes, it is. Memories. By the way, it has a water pouring, pouring ceremony on the last day of the feast. Yeah. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, you're telling us then, and rightfully so, that the reason Jesus was referring to water and drinking is because that was the day that they did this elaborate ceremony there in Jerusalem at the spring and everything. And we have evidence of this very situation and where this happened today. We have recently, fairly fairly recently discovered some of this. But he says, if, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture is set, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's the same phrase again. So it's obvious Jesus is not talking He's simply referencing the fact that there's this flowing living wa- this flowing water in Jerusalem that they're making a ceremony over. 
but he's refer- referencing a spiritual water that's different than the water that they're drinking or using for a ceremony. And it tells you clearly in verse 39, but he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so um, those are the that's the reference there. Well, in in reference to the allegorical use of water, uh, Mike, I was thinking when we started this conversation, uh, my interest to the prophets went back. But in Zechariah 13 and one, it says in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. A reference again to what you usually get from a fountain, drinking water. And that is for sin and uncleanness. So he's right. he's talking about the coming of the Christ here, I believe, in Zechariah. Yes. Now, do you want to make a point about that before we go to Jeremiah, or do you want to talk about Jeremiah? No. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, okay. So this verse here, thirty-seven and thirty-eight, is is just prior to the woman caught in adultery. So let's look at that uh, in chapter eight here of Jeremiah. No, no, John. sorry, John. John, John 8. Yeah, it John says eight, that, that when he was teaching, that verse 2 of John 8, early in the morning he came again to the temple, all the people came to him and sat down. He taught them, and the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they sat, had sat her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. So they're trying to say, if you condemn her, people are going to be upset with you because you looked this woman in the eye and you said stone her, condemn her. Or under under Roman law, they could accuse him of murder. Right. He could be, he's going to be... <coughs> condemned either way or if he said excuse her and don't do it <coughs> then they could accuse him in front of the people of, of transgressing Moses law of course we don't have any record that the Jews were actually killing people for this by themselves at that time anyway they were wanting Christ to do something that they weren't even doing themselves most likely but Jesus then t- uh, says Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her first, or let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When those who heard it, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing in the midst. And when he raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman said to her, woman, where are these accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So then he says he's the light of the world in verse 12. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have light of life. So there's a lot to this story. A lot of people have even said this doesn't even belong in the Gospels. I'm, I'm not one of those. But it is an interesting story because it, People now use it and have always used it to say, don't be so quick to judge other people. Don't say, 
don't say that adultery is wrong. Don't don't um, show any kind of approbation about those who commit adultery or sexual sin, because after all, who's whoever's not guilty, whoever hasn't sinned, they, they're the only ones that get to throw the first stone. Well, 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 what does he mean by neither do I condemn you? In what manner was he condemning you? Well, let's just go back to the law of Moses <coughs> first real quick. Where in the law of Moses does it say, um, who, who does it say should be the one to throw the first stone? Who, who does it say should lead the execution of stoning? The one who made the accusation. That was to prevent you from making false accusations or trivial accusations. That's the point of the law of Moses about that, that the people will be, when they realized that they couldn't just, we have anonymous tip lines. There was no anonymous tip line in the law of Moses. Moses. Okay, you, If you were going to have someone brought to trial, but they didn't have the same methods that we do today and other, other ways of finding out things, you had to be the one to be willing to cast the first stone. And if you made a false accusation, you would suffer the same punishment are supposed to suffer the same punishment, punishment. As one who you accused. So if you accuse them of murder and it was proven that you were lying, you would receive the punishment of a murderer. So this was to prevent people from just throwing out wild accusations like they did at Jesus. And perhaps like they're doing in this case, they said they caught her in the very act. So Jesus then turns it around and says, you're without sin you cast the first stone. what he was doing in a my i think partly what many things he was doing one of them was he was saying you folks are adulterers you yourselves you pharisees commit adultery you're hypocrites you're hypocrites and you're trying to kill this woman because she's vulnerable and so he protects her in that sense but now he doesn't say what you've done is fine doesn't don't worry about it don't sweat the small stuff he doesn't say that to her Says sin no more. Don't sin anymore. So he accuses her of sin. Well, he, he sin. I think he, can, he couldn't cast the first stone, and since and, and, well, he he knew he knew whether she committed adultery or not. I believe. Well, well I always thought he but, did not condemn her in the sense that there was going to be physical punishment right there. There's difference but between he did, legal punishment and punishment there was a, of God. Yeah, there's punishment right. of God and sin. He did condemn her for the sin. Go and sin no more. Right. And you can be that, guilty of gossip and be condemned for it in God's eyes. And yet no one in the no court of law is going to hold you up for gossip, you know, and or throw you in jail, throw you in jail for gossip. Now, so, it's interesting, uh, Mike, that I think our forefathers, this idea of those that were the accusers were the ones that were supposed to throw the first stone. We have a right to confront our accuser under our judicial system, and it comes from this. And, que- and to question them, yes, for them to be questioned <coughs> openly about what they're accusing you of. Now, Ken, you probably want to make a different point about this, so what is that? Yeah, um, what he was really telling these Pharisees, turn to Jeremiah seventeen 13, you'll find out what he wrote on the ground. Oh, so you you know what he wrote on Jeremiah that. seventeen, yeah, verse thirteen. And keep in mind what he just referenced. He was just referencing what he said before about rivers of living water in verse thirty-eight, chapter seven. Those who depart from me shall be written in the in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So you think he wrote this verse? I think he wrote their names. Oh, he wrote their names. 
the names of those people. And so that's why they're saying, that's why he says those of you who are without sin, he's referring to what he just wrote on the ground. I wonder why the text doesn't tell us that explicitly. You know, people have debated about what he wrote on the ground over and over again throughout history as far as Bible commentators, and yet we just don't 100% know. That's an interesting interesting connection. That they would be written in the earth, these the, these. Uh, now, it doesn't say you'll write their names in the earth, but I'm just trying to parse the text. So you you're saying that he wrote their names in the ground, and then what? Then he looked at that, and they looked at their own names in the ground, and then they decide they're going to back off, huh? Yeah. And, and now let's go back to the verse in chapter seven, thirty-eight, verse thirty-seven, thirty-eight. Well, I have a thought. One thing: was he was he writing something specifically, or was he just simply pointing them back to this scripture? He says he's writing their names, but I, I'm sorry, uh, Gary. I, I didn't hear what you said. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But I was thinking, is it was he writing something specific in a way, or was he just writing this scripture in a way to point them back to the to it to make them think about this? Okay, what was the purpose? Why why did they bring the woman to him? Well, they wanted him to basically condemn her. I think under the Mosaic law, and then they could accuse him of taking authority he didn't have against the Romans, or if he didn't do that, then they could accuse him of not keeping the law. That right. was the purpose of it. You, you would say they rejected him as the Messiah? Yes, they were They were rejecting him as the Messiah in that sense, but they were, in more specific sense, they were looking for some way to discredit him before the people, I believe is what they were after. Okay. And he basically saw through all that, right? Yes, in in more than one occasion. You, they were rejecting him as the Messiah. Therefore, he wrote their names in the ground. And Jews don't want their name written in the ground. They want their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah. I'm just, I, I obviously I don't know the answer to the question, just like we don't know the Hundred percent, the answer to the question, what they wrote. I'm I'm wondering why John didn't write their net, write that down. Tell us either who they were or what he wrote on the ground. It's it's like he this is left a mystery in this story on purpose, and that's always that's been the, one of the most puzzling parts about this account down through the centuries. So. By the way, John Spradlin texted in that, that that when Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, that a rock came flying in from the crowd to hit the woman, and Jesus said, Mom, I can't take you anywhere. Speaking to Mary, of course, because she's, well, it's a joke anyway. I've heard that one before. Anyway, uh, no, we, we, we don't know... It, 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 it references the living water as as Holy Spirit. Yes, and so there is this... If you reject the Spirit, the Spirit of God, you're rejecting Christ, and you're, right. you're doomed. The other question I have about this interpretation, and I'm, I'm just poking holes here, Ken, okay, is that 
even though it's in near in near the context in John seven, the the reference that's made in John eight about this or nine is to the light of the world. Uh, he says about uh, John eight about the adulteress. After this account, then it says, "I'm the light of the world." In verse twelve not on the living water. So the question is, what is there? A, is there actually much of a connection? Is it at the same time? Because everybody went to their own house at the end of chapter seven. And then in verse eight, chapter eight, Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives. And that's when this happens. Could be a connection. Um, others have not connected those two events together. But it is possible that the writing on the ground is an interest is certainly of interest because you don't see that very often in the Bible. So it could be that that's what Jesus had in mind and, they, and that they would have thought about that for sure. They wrote their names on the ground. Now, when he wrote their names on the ground, uh, what does that mean to us then? What does this story of the woman at the well mean for us i guess that's been my interest in it trying to figure it out what do you think about that ken well uh at the at the end when they all left people were convicted of their sin uh he says where are all all your accusers is no one condemned and she says no man lord Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn the go and sin no more. So you're saying when she Apparently, says Lord, that she's actually expressing belief in him. Yes, yeah, so. exactly. Which they did not. Right. So she is not condemned because she's a believer. No more. And that makes me then ask the question, do you think that this incident made her a believer or was she one already that has some bearing on this reaction to this if he sensed that she because of his actions here believed in him i can see why he would show mercy to her if on the other hand she's believed in him for a good while and yet still committing adultery i don't know if i i don't think we would have seen the same reaction does that make any sense i think i think she had to did because he said go and sin no more so he's telling her in general, or if he meant specifically in this case, we said, well, it's now since you, uh, since you say you believe, can we interpret this? Since you say you believe in me, you need to stop sinning. I'm not going to condemn you for this. I'm going to, you need to stop sinning. So ra rather than condemn us for our, when we come to Jesus uh, and believe in him, he doesn't condemn us per se. He's willing to offer grace but it still is on the condition of stopping sinning so she was under obligation to not commit adultery anymore and that's what he's and that's what he's uh, putting under that obligation because of her belief so it's interesting that those who say that this that we shouldn't condemn other people for their sins we have to define the word condemn but Jesus certainly expects her to stop sinning. Now, is expecting people to stop sinning, stop committing adultery, 
Is that a is that, is that a condemnation of their previous behavior? Well, I think it is a condemnation. Well, that, of that's why I behavior. said we need to look at the kind of what, in what way did he con- condemn her? Right. Uh, and he didn't just throw her away as a piece of trash, and he didn't he didn't think that she was less of a human being and and put himself above her, which is often the idea of condemnation, this self righteous condemnation. But he certainly didn't approve of what she was doing. And told her to stop doing it. Right. I, I view him as not condemning her from a legal standpoint because I don't think they had met the requirements under the law of that. Do that. Yes. And, and still he's telling her, yes, I do condemn you for the sin and you need to stop sinning. Well, that's the way I interpret it. In, in, I think in, that's what the final statement could can certainly be extrapolated to mean. I mean, overall, the story shows the compassion of Jesus to do what is just and fair and and to um, get this woman to repent. They were interested. They were not interested in this woman at all. The Pharisees and Sadducees were not not interested in this woman. They were simply using her as a pretext to go after Jesus. So they had no interest, no compassion, no concern for her at all. Well, if I, I you just, and I are going to be busy condemning sinners, when we finally meet one, haha, we should can be concerned about them. Well, okay? it, I, I just keep coming back to the differences between this instance and the thief on the cross. What does he tell the thief on the cross, and what does he tell her? He tells her, go sin no more. He tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's a difference, but there was also a much clearer explanation of the belief in him as as the Christ on the cross right there 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 are some differences here this is probably and since I'm thinking of this off the top of my head you need to hopefully you can exercise some uh, (laughs) generosity in your interpretation of what I'm saying but I think it's what I'm making is a valid point Uh, working at, at the state fair I have to work uh, at, at, in uh, close proximity to two or three homosexuals over there. We get along fine as far as the work is concerned, as far as I can tell. But I have to deal with them. And, and uh, overall, and do, do I spend my day condemning them? Not directly, of course. When If, if I have a chance to discuss that issue i certainly would tell the truth about it with them and they would know i think they already know what i think well that's the question i would they ask they already know what i think once once they know what your position is and the why that almost is voiced every time they come across you well they they understand that but i th- i think and even have had occasion a couple times but i've had occasion more than once to and how I treat these people to interact with them, these folks there to interact with them on a, on a human level, on a personal level and so forth. Now, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I am concerned about their moral position, their moral uh, circumstance, but um, and that makes me concerned about them not just in some generic way, oh, I'm against homosexuality, 
so I spend my life going around pointing my finger at all the homosexuals and saying you're a sinner. My point about that is you, you may, it may be true what you're saying. Is that actually showing concern for them to help them to change or to be different or come to some change of heart so they can go and sin no more? And there's a judgment call to be made there. Sometimes a direct open confrontation is the best course of action. And Jesus did that with sinners in his life, and so did Paul. Sometimes that's what's required. Other times, dealing with them as a human being in love and having their best interest at heart, treating them fairly and justly and kindly, also has an effect of bringing about repentance. See, Jesus' fair treatment of this woman brought her to the point of belief and brought her to a point of repentance, if you take the story far enough. It wasn't his direct condemnation, finger-pointing, that brought about this change in this woman. It was the opposite. So there are times when, in dealing with people in close proximity, that kindness and patience and gentleness and firmness going along with that, not an approval, but a firmness about that, also goes a long way to bringing about a change. And I think that goes with this. Now, you know, you can make your judgment calls about, and I can tell you the story, what what you think I did or not. I'm using that as an, a, a real life example. Whether I did what was cor- whether I do what's correct or not, it's not the issue. The the issue is what is correct to do. Jesus seems to bring about a change in this woman by not jumping on the man wagon and having her condemned in a court of law, if he could have, or joining his voice to this chorus of these hypocritical men. Because a lot of the people who are upset about homosexuality, for example, are themselves fornicators and adulterers and guilty of per- the sins of lust and pornography. They themselves are guilty of the, of the other sins that go along with that, just like the ones that they're so righteous about. So it behooves them to think carefully about those things. doesn't excuse any of, the, any of those behaviors at all. But anyway, what do you think? Ken, do you have any thoughts on this? We probably hijacked this question again. Uh, so. I'll just point out what's the very next thing he says. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So she needs to follow him. Right, and stop walking in darkness. I think that's an implication. Yeah. Except that Jesus was such a sexist that in speaking of this woman, he used the word he who walk, he who follows me. And he didn't say he or she who follows me. Or Z, who follows me. He didn't even say any of that stuff. So I don't know what to think of it. I'm kind of being, sort of being facetious there. Sarcastic. Sort of, yeah. Not real. Well, yeah. Anyway, uh, you're correct about that. I didn't think about that application exactly. And I think that's right. Now that we've gone through this, I want you to look at Acts 2.38. And I'm not talking about right now because I'm going to hang up. Acts 2.38 and John 3, 1 through uh, 5, I think I had. Oh, yes. You, I wrote those down. Yes. Okay. And uh, we'll talk about that later. But I think it's okay. Part of the same thing. That's the part where he says you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As he's saying about the living water, you'll receive the Holy Spirit later. And you want... All right, yeah. I'll try to scribble that down, Ken, here. I did make a note of it, and maybe we can discuss that on a future show. 
or you can call back. I'm gonna do. I'll do a little. I'll do a little thinking about that. Born again. Okay. I'd actually intended today, if uh, we didn't have any phone calls, to talk about some of these events that are going on at Asbury College with respect to the Holy Spirit, and uh, don't really have a lot of time left to do that. Are you? Uh, thanks for calling, Ken. I do appreciate it. This okay. is a, a story. The woman at the well. That's. I, I don't know how to say this, Gary. I guess what I'm trying. That's what I was trying to say with that example. Uh, it's one thing to say you you have a very strong moral position on things, and for us to speak up and say this behavior is wrong, whether it's adultery or fornication or homosexuality or whatever it might be. Uh, that's that's permissible. It's quite another to translate that, and this is where I think a lot of Christians have fallen, uh, have uh, failed, including me. It's quite another to translate that position into how I treat someone. When you look in the New Testament about how the people like Paul and even Jesus who spoke against immorality, how they treated the individual people that, that they met every day who were guilty of the immorality, that would be a good study because you'll see that they didn't go around uh, beating them with protest signs and pointing their finger in their face and screaming at them, you see. Now, on the other hand, I admit that there is a great difference between those who are standing at a public protest, screaming obscenities and so forth, than a person that you meet you know, in your daily life, like the people that I work with uh, in, in, during the State Fair exhibition. There's quite a bit of difference in those kinds of people. And I would probably, I've had a chance to debate people religiously, uh, publicly at times. And I certainly treat the person who's standing up publicly defaming the name of the Lord, I'm certainly going to have a different approach with them and be much more direct with them as far as holding their feet to the fire in their logical positions of what they're saying than I am a person in the audience who's just trying to learn who may disagree with me, you know. I'm not going to treat those two people the same, and I don't treat them the same. I don't have any problem going after someone who's, in, who's making a public uh, accusations against the Lord and the gospel and all that. I have no problem going against them very strongly uh, in, that, in that. Whereas the person who's in the audience trying to learn, I'm going to treat that person much more gently. And, and that's the way it ought to be. Well, it's not hypocritical. It's the way it ought to be. Just coming off the top of my head, and th these are difficult because I'm not good at quick coming off the top of my head things that make sense. But it seems to me in the way that the apostles and many of those that taught from the New Testament that were recorded what they did, that the way they treated these people uh, depended on Basically, he says after a first and second admonition, he talks to some them. They were never to advocate violence or anything like that. About the worst thing they advocated doing was avoid those people. Once once they passed a certain level, He's speaking of, particularly Christians, yeah, particularly yeah, Christians, yeah. particularly Christians who were claiming to have this a factious man after second and third admonition refused him. Yes, and and in general, these people that were not Christians, Paul seems to be very patient with, up to a point. Right. Well, you go to Jude, the small little book in the end of the New Testament. He talks about 
building yourself up on verse 20 of Jude. There's only one chapter uh, on your most holy faith. And so keep yourself in the love of God. And he says in verse 22, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. And on yes. others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So there's at least two kinds of people here, maybe more. One of them is a person who is wrong, who you need to have compassion for that person. And you make a distinction between them and the ones that are dangerous, that are extremely oppositional and dangerous to you spiritually and others. And you try to save them, too, but you pull them out of the fire very, you know, very carefully and you hate you hate the garment defiled by the flesh. You, you hate the fact that in here's what he's warning you of there in dealing with those kind of fractious, argumentative, uh, disrespectful, blasphemous people. You are tempted to act the same way. And if, if you're a competitor or a debater as me, it brings out of that that part of you out that wants to attack them in the same way. And you got to be cautious because you don't want to be defiled in the same way as they are with their attitudes and well, their it's, hostility. It's, it's the same thing we run against when we start criticizing war and the things that happen in war. When you're opposed by a very ruthless enemy, in order to succeed or to win, you tend to have to become yeah. what your enemy is. There's probably is. many people that have said this, but Churchill is the latest iteration who said that, basically. We, have, we, are, we can become the we enemy can, that we're fighting if we're not careful. careful. And you see evidence of this in World War II and other wars. Um, I think the war on terror. I think we see some evidence of this, uh, even among people who are trying to do what's right. And that's not to be justified. But but this is the way, this is the difference between how we treat individuals, showing them love and compassion, how we, how we go after our cause. When I speak against homosexuality on this show strongly, I'm speaking about the cause, the idea, the propositions involved, not necessarily how to treat the individuals involved in this sin. Uh, and some of them you treat one way, some another. Same thing is true with other sins. Well, we've got our time is uh, pretty short well, here. Gary. The only thing I would like 20 to seconds left yeah, the only thing I'd like to reinforce is the Bible never, never appears to me to advocate violence against these people. No, no, especially in the New Testament, no violence against, and that's and that's uh, just part of loving your neighbor as yourself. Yes. All right. Well, we need to uh, wrap the show up here. We're really glad that you've listened today. I, I need to give you a couple more pieces of information before you go. Number one, you can reach us not only by text messages. I gave you the numbers. Uh, uh, but you can also reach us by email during the week at justchristians at att.net. We'd love to get an email from you if you want to speak about this or any other issue, justchristians at att.net. And we'd like to invite you to come and worship with us. We meet at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie, uh, the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. We meet at 10 o'clock this morning for Bible studies, really about 10 after 10. And then 11 o'clock is our regular worship with preaching and communion. And we uh, also meet on Wednesday nights at 7.30. We have classes for all your children, for you. We'd love to have you come meet with us, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. And take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you until next week. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church. On WPSL, Port St. Lucie.